Before there was IMDB.com, there was Zach and Dustin. You know those guys who think they know everything about a movie without having to go on the internet to look it up? That's us, but maybe only for the years 1981 through mid-1989. No, I'd say late 1978 through early 1992. (laughs) Either way, we know movies. And even more specifically, we know soundtracks from those movies. Yeah, this is $2 Late Fee with Zach and Dustin. This is the podcast where we pick a movie and soundtrack from our youth that we loved and see if it still holds up today. All in the spirit of positivity and togetherness. Thanks for listening. On to the show. So today is is really fun because we have our, I think it's our third composer. Yeah. It seems like every season we have a composer on the show. We started out with Vince DiCola. Second season we had Brad Fidel. And then now we have... Craig Saffin. That's interesting. We should probably try and increase that average a little bit. Uh, <laughs> we sh- it's, we it's should. It's not intentional. Everybody knows, you know, it's not like we're like only one composer per season. Well, Jim Walker, does Jim Walker count as a composer? No, he's just an amazing dude. Yeah. He's on a plateau of his own. He's on his, his own plane of creative manifestation and loveliness. <laughs> yes. yes. But today's guest, Craig Saffin, is, dare I say, another guy on his own level of uh, remarkability. Remarkability. You like that word? I would never introduce myself that way. I don't think anybody would. You know, how you doing? Oh, you're on your own plane of remarkability, aren't you? Um, Sure. (laughs) I'm just saying you're remarkable. That's all I'm saying. You're remarkable. You're a remarkable remarkable composer. All right. Remarkability. The thing about Craig is is he's a true artist. He has a very wide range of projects he's worked on, specifically in the 80s. He even comments on that in the first few minutes of the interview saying the 80s were really good to him. He had a he had a really he had a good run. The 80s as they were say. very kind to him. Yeah, no, he I mean and just in terms of movies that we've covered, his name is, has been coming up really for the past 3 years and it was just kind of this funny you know, stars aligning of like, oh, of course you're going to be on the show because you've composed The Legend of Billie Jean, which was like our second or third episode that we covered here. Yep. Um, the Last Starfighter, which we haven't covered, but it feels like we have. <laughs> yeah, there's enough nostalgic love in there that I'm sure we've talked about it on a program or two. Remo Williams. Oh, my God. Of course. Of course. Dun, 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 dun. Yeah, we had a great discussion with Craig about that one. The level of detail and research he did in specifically using pieces in the film is really uh, impressive. Yeah. One might even say the level of remarkability that he uses is really impressive. (laughs) Or Just learned that uh, two and a half minutes ago. So I'm using it all the time. Uh, Yes. And then, of course, you know, um, Thief, not that he composed the score to Thief, um, and Thief, of course, we just covered two weeks ago. Uh, it's out now. You can check it out. We, uh, it's a real tribute to James Caan. But um, Tangerine Dream did the sort of majority of the score. However, the last seven minutes, which are the best minutes musically, uh, were all done by Craig. Craig's great. He did a fun $2 six question segment with us that you can hear on our Patreon. If you sign up now, 
We produce the hell out of these shows, and they're a lot of fun. And they'll leave you with a smile on your face or more of a shock and awe moment, depending on what show you listen to. If it's Tales from the Video Store, shock and awe. If you're listening to uh, our segments, What Does Dustin Know? or Why Does Zach Own This? or $2 Six Questions, it's more smile on your face. Absolutely. There isn't, there isn't a lot more to, to say other than, you know, enjoy this interview because it's a good one. Yeah, enjoy Craig Saffin and go forth, Starfighter. <laughs> okay. Craig Saffin, thank you so much for being on $2 Late Fee. Uh, my pleasure. Glad to be here. Great to have you. I was just saying a minute ago before we hit record on this podcast, um, you know, we had Vince DeCola on in our first year uh, of our show, and then we had uh, Brad Fidel a year later, and now we have you on our show, and it's truly an honor. We were going through your um, kind of filmography and, and TVography, right. and just blown away by how prolific your career is. Yeah, the the 80s and 90s were really busy in the late 70s. They were like nonstop. We've realized that you're connected to basically like 95% of the movies that we've either talked about. Sometimes we just mention a movie accidentally. Zach, right. Zach was talking about Warning Sign randomly. Oh, yeah. About one of his favorite sort of lesser known horror movies. And we're like, oh, look who composed that. Yeah, that one I thought had faded into obscurity and then because uh, the film didn't do very well. But then a, a few years back, I got a call from uh, the, the, this label called Inveda in uh, England that does. A, and it's run by the guy who's Jeff Barrow, who was the head of the group Portishead. Oh, really? Yeah. And they oh, cool. and it turns out that's like one of their all time favorite because they call it heavy metal because it was like a lot of percussion. It was all thin. <laughs> oh, yeah. It was totally sit. And then they uh, actually got the rights from Fox and did a beautiful uh, digital uh, release, also a vinyl release with all new artwork. Oh, wow. It's fantastic. Yeah, check it out. You could probably pick it up on Amazon or something. But the vinyl one is beautiful. And like they even went where it's a double vinyl double vinyl because i mean that's all the it has everything on it and the the vinyl the 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 discs actually have blood splatters <laughs> oh, design on it you can't Whoa. get better than that right <laughs> yeah i mean you're you're blowing my mind a couple uh, in a couple ways first of all i didn't know uh that record label was founded by one of the guys from Portishead because Portishead is a tremendously fantastic band oh yeah jeff barrow um, his name is that's so cool and and yeah warning sign is one of those movies that dustin and i were compiling a list of some of our yeah lesser known or under the radar horror thriller 
uh, films from the 80s. And that one was on my short list because mm. it, it's a very underappreciated, I think, in many ways. Um, and in some ways, a little timely, you know, in a, in a, in a kind of okay. odd way. Yeah. Um, but that's cool to have it pressed in, in the fact that it's been vinylized. In, in a... <laughs> yeah, no, it's very cool. actually had to go out and get a, a record player <laughs> I'd gotten rid of mine so long ago and now i went well i guess i better have a have one of these things i'm sure but in the same way that the 80s are coming back i mean vinyl's vinyl, been back yeah a lot of my scores are now in vinyl all the nightmare on elm street uh there's a giant box like you know with eight discs in it of of all the elm street uh scores yeah, you had recently, um, about a, maybe two two years ago, three years ago, uh, put out the, a vinyl release of the Remo Williams soundtrack. Right. Well, I didn't put it out, uh, but yeah, <laughs> label, uh, note for note music. Note for note. Yeah. Our good friend, Peter Hackman. Peter. Uh, he's everybody's good friend. He, yeah, that guy literally knows everybody. He's a great guy. I've known him for a long time. Uh, <laughs> we're good buddies. Uh, yeah. So he he did the, the latest Remo. It's been done by two other labels besides that but he did it in vinyl which i thought was great it's beautiful and and if people haven't picked it up they definitely should i, I think it's that that's i think in this day and age um there was a time when vinyl was considered dead right vinyl won't well, no well, one's sure. gonna need vinyl well, anymore i got rid of i had a huge collection of uh records from my college days and i got rid of almost all of them and got rid of my turntable i mean i just thought you know nobody's ever gonna want these things anymore but they actually have a unique sound i put on some of the old records i still had and i mean they really have their own their own sound that's very different from a cd or streaming and now cds are gone but we're, they're still being put out i have cds put out all the time in my music i think because collectors want a physical entity they don't yep. want to just go oh i can stream that on spotify no they want the object with the booklet with every cue and you know because that's how collectors are they want something to collect not digital is not i guess uh with nfts or something digital things are sort of cool to collect but i'm not positive no. about that Absolutely. In fact, we had uh, we were just interviewing uh, the the founders of Vidiots, which is you know a very well known video sure. store out here, and they were saying, which I was not aware of, they were basically saying that, you know, we we just assume that everything can be streamed and that everything is accessible, but the reality is, it's not. It's really not. Is Vidiots still open? They're coming back. I went there countless times, and you're right because that place is like a a, a huge library. They have stuff that you've never ever seen in your life and it's not all it's not all streamable plus a lot of my scores are not streamable because what happens a film composer by getting paid to write gives up 
their uh, ownership of the copyright. So for so a lot of films, uh, things like Spotify or Apple Music or all those things, they can't get the rights. Yeah. Mm. So there's a lot of things I'm trying, like the last Starfighter, I'm trying to get Warner Brothers to release the rights. Well, I've been talking to them for over a year, but there was one or two people in an office that handled that. And it's like, there's 8 million things they have to deal right. with every day. And this is not, same thing, stand and deliver, same thing. Elm Street isn't even streamable, those wow. scores. And they're trying to get them out. That's also Warner Brothers now. And uh, it's, you know, so lots of stuff is not available for streaming. Yeah, we, we talk about that on our show. Uh, not only do we obviously cherish the movies from the 80s and 90s, uh, but we also talk about certain songs from those movies, too. Oh, sure. Sometimes it's a score, sometimes it's a song, but quite often those songs are not um, able to be located right. in, on the Spotify's. Or you might be able to find a rough copy on YouTube, um, but unless you have the physical copy, you're kind of out of luck because— so much of this stuff is kind of goes by the wayside, you know. It does, and it's hard to find. I have someone who's trying, who's always trying to get some one song from this movie, another obscure movie, The Legend of Billie Jean, that yep. got that is so the song, and I don't have it. I I've looked for it. I have the score, but I did. I can't find the song. Which song is it? It's called uh, da da da. I can't remember. My brother sang it actually. Uh, do you know what, what part of the movie it's in? No, because there were a lot of songs because there was <laughs> right. song right. was the big one. Invincible. Invincible. That was a big song. Now that obviously you could find. But uh Closing In. The song was called Closing nice. In. Closing In. We'll find it. We'll track it down. <laughs> yeah, we'll find we'll find it. Yeah, they're there. It's somewhere. It's there. <laughs> it's there closing in uh but that's fantastic and, and you know legend of billy jean is one of our favorites it's one of the first movies we covered actually when we started the podcast really? and yep. um it was a pretty good movie actually i i thought it was a cool movie and i liked the score and the song was great i, I really liked that movie I, I, it doesn't get a lot of love though well maybe from you yeah from us from us it certainly does and it is one of those movies that i think does hold up you know, and I, I say that. Yeah, in a very... it's a good movie. It's an interesting movie. Yeah. Can you talk about kind of how you first got into composing? Um, sure. Maybe with some some Holocaust documentaries, <laughs> things like no. lighthearted I... stuff that you were composing in the seventies. For what? Lighthearted what? stuff you were composing in the seventies, California Reich. Oh, the guy you know about that one, huh? Uh, well, interesting. I really. Uh, started writing songs when I was, you know, like 12 or 13 and uh, wrote original musicals in college. And I never really thought of doing film music. And then uh, I spent a year on a fellowship writing music in London. And then when I came back here, I uh, was singing and writing songs with my brother, Mark. And, uh, and, uh, struggling I was arranging I arranged a bunch of record albums and stuff like that I did an Emmy Lou Harris thing and you know but it wasn't enough to pay the bills and then one day uh, I think I was around 24 or 20 I guess around 24 I got a call from an old friend in college who 
said, hey, I got married. My husband's out here at AFI. They were from back east. And he made a cheap horror film on Super 16, talk about 70s. And uh, we don't know anyone. You're the only musician we know in L.A. You know who <laughs> could do our music. And I said, I'll do it. <laughs> and that changed my life because I did it. The movie never got released. Mm. But doing it, I went, oh, this is my talent. This is what I should be. I should not be trying to write hit songs because I am my, my musical tastes are too broad. Writing a pop hit song is like going to the tiniest bullseye. I mean, I have friends who've done it a lot, like Billy Steinberg's a good friend of mine, you know, who wrote like a virgin and true colors yeah. and that. And those guys can really focus on that kind of stuff. And I'm very musically broad, as you probably can tell from my, my scores. And so I started doing it and I was working in a studio doing these as a songwriter performer with a group of other people. We were all being produced by the same person who owned the studio. And I went, oh, uh, there's a guy who played on a lot of my demos, good friend of mine, Andrew Gold, and who, by the way, played drums, piano, and guitar in pretty much every Ronstadt hit. And, <laughs> oh, his dad's a composer, Ernest Gold. Oh, yeah, the guy who wrote Exodus and all Stanley Kramer's film. Oh, and there's my buddy who plays bass on my stuff, Peter Bernstein, and his dad was Elmer Bernstein. And then, uh, who you must know who that is, I guess. And then uh, there was this young woman, Wendy Waldman, whose father was a uh, Fred Steiner, who was a wonder, who wrote uh, the Perry Mason theme, lots of the Star Treks, Rocky wow. and his friends, that theme. So wild. And he was like a musicologist. So I thought, so I said to my friends, do you mind if I call your dad? <laughs> <laughs> they said, yeah. And, and so the, those three guys became my mentors. Oh, my God. It was just totally serendipitous, and uh, they became my mentors, and my career sort of just skyrocketed so quickly. It was amazing. That is so cool. I mean, so so your first, like Dustin said, you, you kind of first foray into the composing world was with the California Reich. Well, uh, that was that was the second one. The first one was this movie that never got released called The Demon's Daughter, and ironically the director who i never worked with again and we're we were friends for a while was john mctiernan mm. and john uh who did die hard and predator yeah. and all predator. that yeah. and my career sort of shot off and his took him a while before he got to nomads which i think sort of set him off with pierce brosnan yeah yeah but then i had another my my brother had another friend walter parks who was making uh, this documentary about the nazi party in california and they just needed a little piece of music to get into the, the film. Hmm. And so I got called to do it in one day so they could get Academy consideration. And, hmm. uh, and I did that and that was a lot of fun. And then that everything leads to something else that led to uh, dynamite women and <laughs> on and on. What led to the good guys were black. <laughs> you know, that was really early. I think. Yeah. I was actually on my honeymoon in Mexico and Guatemala, and I got a call from my agent about that movie. So I cut my honeymoon short because oh. I needed, uh, you know, I needed the work. I had to make a living. Right. And I, I don't really remember how it came came to me. I didn't think I, I don't remember. 
I remember writing it and it was fun to write because uh, I had just spent part of my honeymoon in Guatemala where I had heard a lot of marimba bands where they have mm. three marimbas. Some of them have three people in the same marimba. And I thought, oh, that'll be cool because this movie sort of a lot of it takes place in Vietnam and refers to Vietnam. So I thought, right. oh, I'm going to use a lot of marimbas on this one. That would be fun to write. That's amazing. So you were on your honeymoon and you said to your representation, just interrupt if there's any work that shows up. <laughs> I don't know. I didn't say that. I just got the call. <laughs> they knew how to find you, obviously. Uh, and I went, well, you know, yeah. we're going to cut our, we had a, like a three week honeymoon. I mean, okay. we just cut it short by four or five days. Okay. So that's... I tailed back to LA for a gig. I mean, yeah. listen, that's fair. It's yeah. not like, it's not like it's a sure thing to make a living as a film composer. <laughs> no, totally, totally. And but I, I, I mean, yeah. I guess in my mind, I was thinking, you know, you were like three days into your honeymoon, and they're like, "Oh, uh, sorry, we honey." Were, we were, we yeah. we had a great honeymoon. That's all great. Over Mexico and Guatemala, and I mean, it was a lot of. And I'm sure, sure you've made it up to her anyway. Yeah, because you many, many times over. <laughs> yeah, it was great. Yeah, you're like, look, I'll make it up to you. I'll yeah. I'll just keep working from yeah. now until, you know, <laughs> forever time. Right. No, no, it was fun. It's, it, and Dustin was saying earlier, there's a lot of connections or parallels with the, the work that you've done and movies either we've covered on the show or if we've discussed on the show with uh, actors who've been in your movies, like Roller Boogie, for example. Stoney Jackson was a someone we had on our show not that long ago, and he was... That was one of his first projects he ever worked on in Roller Boogie. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that was that was a long time ago. That was during the disco years. Yes. And uh, yeah, that was an interesting movie. I mean, there were a lot of songs and there was a score, too. I think Paul Jabara wrote a lot and Bob Esty wrote a lot of disco music for that. One movie from that period that uh, I did part of the score now that James Kahn just died was Thief. I replaced the entire last reel, which was all music. The whole ending of Thief was was uh, my music. The rest was Tangerine Dream, actually. Yeah. Thief is actually a, a, one of, it's a favorite of ours because- it's a great movie. We, yeah, it is a great movie. Uh, we, we're, we covered the movie on our show mm -hmm. and rest in peace to James Caan, obviously, who just, who just passed away. In my opinion, one of his best roles of all time. Yeah. Um, how did you get connected with Michael Mann, the whole process of working on Thief? Uh, well, Thief was Thief was done by Tangerine Dream. Yeah. So Michael and the music editor, Bob Batamy, hired Tangerine Dream. And they would they were in Germany, I guess, and they would send music. And it it wasn't like Hollywood movie where music where everything is exactly to picture. Then Michael and Bob would cut the music and move it around, cut the units and all that. And they just were not happy with the ending. And the, I think the thing about that music is it's very exciting, you know, and it was sort of new at the time that sort of, bum, 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 you know, that sort of sequenced uh, synth mm -hmm. thing. But 
it didn't have a lot of uh, emotional or soulful content, that music. Hmm. It's great music, but it doesn't make you feel much other than, oh my God, what's going to happen next? But it doesn't give you that sort of release, that, that emotional depth that, that that movie needed. And so the whole last reel of it where basically James Caan kills everybody and walks off into the world. That's an amazing ending. And um, I think Michael Mann wanted Jimmy Page, who was totally uninterested or not available. <laughs> but, but, I, but, but then Bob suggested me, Bob Batamy, because I had worked with him on a number of films. And so I basically got the gig and, and I went, oh, okay, so you want like, guitar music screaming guitar which i call dying dinosaur music you know dying dinosaur music just this huge overwhelming crazy guitar stuff and i thought well given that it's tangerine dream i should not write like on a movie like last starfighter every note is sculpted and sculpted to the picture but that wasn't what this was this is just like get this groove going don't try to catch anything. Just get this huge emotion going and and just repeat it forever. Just repeat these four chords mm -hmm. for like six or seven minutes, which is a long time in music. <laughs> it yeah. is. In music world. And that's what we did. And I got a great guitar player and synth and, you know, it's just, and we just, all I did, I wrote one melody that don, 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 and it was just a melody. And then I basically sketched how I wanted it to build. But I didn't write notes because the other thing is with rock and roll music, the minute you write notes, it stops sounding like rock and roll music. Hmm. So I wrote like one little theme, which was very simple, and some chords. And then I just let everybody play and I sort of directed the build. And that made it sound more authentic. And it's interesting because I didn't think much of it at the time. It was literally an over, you know, a, a three-day job. Yeah. That thing is lived on. That piece of music called Confrontation is lived on. It's all over uh, YouTube and, you know, everybody does something with it. I think Michael Mann specifically has taken that sound and used that for other movies like Manhunter and Heat specifically. That that specific piece, the confrontation, has a signature sound of Michael Mann. He's not, he never hired me again. So <laughs> oh. I mean, whenever I see Michael, he's as nice as can be. Hey, Craig, how's it going? I mean, he was really nice, but he's sort of a control freak and he wants to... Uh -huh. yeah, he wants to control every every second of everything but uh yeah well i didn't know that i always thought his music was more like tangerine dream kind of electronic 
This was not electronic, especially. If you go back to um, specifically Manhunter, and like I said, Manhunter and Heat, and yeah. listen to pieces in that, obviously he has these different artists doing music, but it has that sound. Yeah. Well, he tends to use a few composers and yeah. in the same movie and then picks what he wants. I mean, he's not an ideal person to work for because he, you know. <laughs> Creatively sounds horrible. Yeah. He's difficult. Yeah. You know, he's great. he makes great movies, but from a composer standpoint, he's difficult because, you know, he's he's sort of just seeing what he likes. If he could write it, he would. Right. So even in that three-day job, you were feeling a lot of... I didn't, but afterwards he took the uh, guitar out of the whole thing and shifted it and moved it. Right. If you listen to my to the version in the movie and then the version on the CD, even though they're the same musically, the guitar is in different places. Interesting. He had the 24 track where he could remove it. Oh, the man. And so he was taking it and saying, hey, I like it better here. And you move it for a Oh, my God. Yeah. Okay, what, whatever. whatever. Your movie. It's a job, right. But uh, yeah, but it, that, that piece of music has, has lived on and, uh, you know, and, and, it, and I like it. it. It has a lot of integrity, which I like. Yeah, we, I mean, obviously we do too. And that's why we, one of the many reasons why we've had you on our show is, is to talk about that. But uh, you were saying uh, uh, directors that you maybe, a director you've had a positive relationship with is Nick Castle, right? Because you've done a few movies with him. Yeah, I've done four or five, something like yeah. six movies. Starting with Tag the Assassination Game. Linda yeah. Hamilton's first film, possibly. It was yep. Robert Carradine. Yep. 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 Bruce Abbott, I believe. Yeah, Bruce. Yeah. How did you come about working with Nick Castle? Well, that was a, one of those stories uh, that it was a, a pretty low budget film. And the producer was Peter Roston. His father was, Ir, I think, Irving Roston or Irwin Roston, who was a documentary filmmaker for National Geographic. And he had a relationship with Elmer Bernstein and they wanted Elmer to do it. And Elmer didn't really want to do it. <laughs> and we had the same agent and they, uh, they said, well, Elmer doesn't, is too, is busy right now or whatever. And, but you should try Craig, he'd be great. And so they hired me and it was really the beginning of a beautiful friendship, as they say in Casablanca, yeah. but because Nick and I became best of friends and have done lots and lots of projects together so he's great and he's a wonderful person to to work with because he, he really knows music for one thing his father was a very famous choreographer so he grew up in the world of movie musicals and his dad choreographed the nicholas brothers and shirley temple and you know then he, uh, nick made this movie called tap which i helped develop i love tap yeah, well, I helped develop that movie, and then I, I ended up being busy at the time, so I didn't do the music. But uh, I think James Newton Howard did it. Mm. But uh, but uh, I owned a piece of it because I helped develop all the ideas for it. Oh, cool! Let's 
jump into sure. that really quick because that's Tap is 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 a fantastic movie, underrated. Yeah. Gregory Hines, rest in peace, iconic. So you said you helped develop it. Was it a, a something that's close to your heart? Uh, we were writing it, uh, and we came up with this idea that you could put sensors on tap shoes that would trigger synthesizers. Mm. Yeah. No one had ever done before. I mean, now it seems pretty obvious, but <laughs> so that Greg Hines, every time he'd do this or that with different parts of his feet, he was a tap dancer. Uh, and Greg Hines, I also worked with in Wolfen too. Yeah. So he, he would tap his feet and each different tap would trigger some big electronic sound. And that sort of became, I think, what helped sell the movie to the studio. Sabian Glover was in it and it was maybe Sammy Davis Jr.'s last film. That's very cool, though, that you very have that, cool. that link, because obviously Nick Castle did that movie, and yeah. it's a fun movie to, for people if they haven't seen it. So you said Tag was your first the first film that you did with Nick Castle? Yes. And, and he wanted to hire Elmer Bernstein. At that point, did you have to do anything on spec, or was he just like, all right, yeah, we'll just, we'll just hire Craig? In, in those days, uh, there wasn't as much spec stuff as today, mainly because to put in, to have an orchestra, you needed money and a studio and copyists, and it was a big deal. So if you were going to do a demo, I mean, I've done, I did them for some movies, and usually they try to fit me in 15 minutes in somebody else's session. Mm. It's just too expensive. I mean, now you just do everything, you know, in your studio, you can, everybody has to demo everything. Right, of course. A billion times over, for better or worse. But back then, it was impractical. It was, a, it was a lot of work and expensive. So no, I just basically, I guess they listened to a bunch of my music and went, oh, okay, if Elmer says so or... Got it. Yeah. So, because it, it really is about trust. Like the, I mean, like any relationship now, but still there's a lot. Yeah. A lot. Yeah. A lot of trust because people don't know what, no music and they, a lot of people don't even know how to talk to a composer or how to talk to a, you know, musician. And so it's, you're really uh, trusting someone with your baby a lot and it can affect the movie so much, but mm -hmm. uh, you know, it's not like they can tell you what notes you should write. Right. <laughs> right. It's not like a line reading or something. Yep. No, 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 nothing like that. But the music can affect the movie for better or worse in so many ways. And oh, then we've yeah. talked about that on our show that, you know, certain pieces just maybe wasn't the right fit for that scene or whatever. Or mm -hmm. like I said earlier, that movie, Jake speed, there's a 10 minute chunk where there's no music at all. Mm -hmm. And you realize it, you're very aware of it. Obviously sometimes it's purposeful. Oh, uh, yeah. Hopefully, you know, but this was a moment where I'm like, I wonder if they ran out of money in this scene because they, there's like literally no music in this part. Mm -hmm. um, but your music fuels a lot of the energy that exists in these movies. Yeah, absolutely. That's what film music does. It 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 gives you a subtext and a and a an energy and a beat and it it, it tells the story in a way that goes directly into one's body. They can't totally. stop it. It isn't like I can. Oh, I don't want to listen to this or I don't want to look at this. You know, when music comes at you, you I mean, short of wearing earplugs, it affects you. It affects you in a very deep physical 
level, not only psychologically, but literally it will change your heart rate. It'll change your brain waves. It'll change the conductivity of your skin. It does all sorts of stuff to you without you saying yes. It just, you're out of control. You, you, it just doesn't. And I think that's why there's still, even though all the other aspects of movie making are so sort of realistic, there's still more music than ever in, in these movies because it gives you uh, a connect, a human connection that you can't think away. Totally. It's a really good point. Has there ever been a case where you felt like a director was trying maybe to manipulate the audience to feel something a little bit too much? Oh, I don't know. Uh, I can't remember. Mm. I mean, there've been movies that I've watched that I go, wow, this is over the top where this music is pretty melodramatic for this moment, yeah. or, you know, they're way off sync with what the movie's doing. I mean, I couldn't really name that, but yeah. I certainly felt that. And I think sometimes the directors or producers want the music to do something that actually doesn't exist in the That's film. Interesting. And yeah. you're, you're supposed to try anyway, you know, oh, well, yeah. I'm going to gear up and do this big thing, even though that, does not exist in the film whatsoever it's the like let's fix it in all post that, yeah well that's all obviously impossible yeah. so yeah so yeah of course all that happens yeah you're like you didn't shoot that guys you didn't shoot that exactly i can't make that happen of all the life forms on all the planets in all the galaxies been chosen. Alex Rogan. Alex? I'm Alex. Is the last starfighter. For every Earthling who's ever imagined traveling beyond the stars. Maybe there is a starfighter left. I love you, Alex Rogan the unforgettable story of one who made it. Wow! The Last Starfighter. Last Starfighter is one of those movies that has the music gets you, you know, excited for the action that's about to happen. There's mm. so many moments in that throughout that entire film that feel uh, in many ways to me as a little kid watching that movie, like that's what maybe. The, that music made me think of when I was playing with my G.I. Joes going into space or something like that. Yeah, yeah. That must have been a fun project to work on. Yeah, that was a great experience because, first of all, I get along so well with Nick. And it was just a really interesting experience on a lot of levels. On one level, it it sort of was the first movie that had that much CGI in it. Yeah. So we were when I was scoring it, I would be seeing a black screen with a little white dot and then another white dot. And they go, oh, that's the Conan warship. And that's oh, it. Yeah. You didn't see it until long after you wrote the music. So you'd sort of go, okay, bum, bum. you know, you write this huge music with this 80 piece orchestra to this little oh, white yeah. dot, but you'd have to assume that as it got, uh, generated more and more levels of, of uh, resolution, but it took a long time. I mean, the, the computer 
I, I was at a talk back years later with the guys who were the the special effects guys. And they basically said, you know, we did this thing on this huge Cray computer that took up a building and had to be cooled by water. <laughs> oh and that. But wow. it had less computing power than your iPad. Wow. They had to do all this vec. They had to invent a lot of the vector yeah. uh, stuff. I don't really pretend to understand it, but I mean, <laughs> it was, it was, you know, one time you'd see this, then, you'd see a few pictures and then they'd add atmosphere, a layer of atmosphere, which made it feel a little more real. Then they'd add another layer. And it was just this very constant long process to get all this CGI to work. And you're looking at asteroids, basically. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> so it, it was great. It, but it was also a lot of fun to, uh, to have that big orchestra and to be trusted with, with it. It was a huge orchestra and, and, uh, you know, just to make it all work. And it really worked great. I mean, I love the score and people like the score a lot, obviously. And I think the recording of it's beautiful. There's a new CD that just came out, an Entrada, which are all new uh, digital uh, transfers from the composer's reel-to-reel uh, -reel copies. And they sound amazing. Was that your first time working with a such a large orchestra? No, I mean, I did a bunch of movies. Well, The Bad News Bears mm. was a huge orchestra. We adapted the 1812 Overture, but there was a lot of my music. Yeah. That that was, yeah, it was in my, I think I was 26 when we did oh, that. Oh, man. And uh, then uh, Corvette Summer, the Mark Hamill film. Yep. That was his first film after Star Wars. That was a big that was a big orchestra. That was a full, and actually you mentioned Tag the Assassination Game. That was a pretty big orchestra too. Okay. Yeah, all those were big orchestras, uh, and I'm sure there were others that I'm forgetting that led up to the Last Starfighter. The Last Starfighter was the best of all. Mm -hmm. I think the best in terms of my writing and the recording, the amount of care we took with everything. We had the money to do it, and the orchestra was massive. It was more massive than all those other pictures. It was it, because one of my struggles was that I didn't want it to. I mean, you had you had to to do a space opera. You couldn't just say, okay, I'm going to do this with a, a an electric guitar. You really yeah. couldn't do that or with synths. Mm -hmm. it, the studio and every, it called for the John Williams deal. So yeah. if you went against that, you'd have been, you know, fired immediately. So <laughs> the trick was how did you make it yours? So it didn't just sound like you were ripping off Star Wars. Right. And so one way was to do this, uh, orchestra that was the size of a Mahler symphony, which is much bigger than most orchestras. And so that was one way to do it. There were a bunch of other ways too, but uh, that was the goal. The goal was to make it, you know, make it mine, make it a, a score that lived outside of being a ripoff of someone else. Right. And you, and you don't have any budgetary limitations really. Is that accurate? Well, on that one, no, because they knew they had to have a big orchestra. Right. So you're like, whatever you need, bring them in. Yep. Yeah, it was huge. It was a huge orchestra. And uh, something they never do now, we we recorded the synths live with the orchestra. Oh, that's cool. And see, like John Williams will never, never use a synth. So that was definitely mm -hmm. part of it was that it's going to have this aspect of these big synths, but there were two guys playing them. And... Uh, 
it, they they were not pre-recorded. It was all mixed live. It was not remixed. That was a live That's mix. Rad. Wow. That's, that's really cool. cool. Yeah. And that's why it just sounds great. It really does. I was getting, and you were saying about yeah. that big sound. You have to have a big sound in space. Um, I think even Queen knew that when they did Flash Gordon. <laughs> well, what, what was it? In space, no one can hear you scream. So I guess there is no, what, that was Marooned or some movie. But, uh, you know, so I guess there actually is no sound in space. Well, maybe no right. one can hear a guitar scream. In space. Yes. <laughs> Sorry, that's terrible. It's it's fair. You know, we also we we also covered uh, Remo Williams on our show, oh, yeah. and when you talk about that synth sound um, oh. mixed in with the orchestra, that kind of pulsing, that doom yeah. doom doom, that sound. I you know I'm not doing it justice, obviously recreating it with my mouth, um, yeah. but that came about after, and beautiful score as well. Yeah, that that was the most complex of all my scores, I think, because uh, really? that was pre-digital and there were 24 track tape machines, but there was a way to take two 24 track tape machines and sync them together hmm. uh, using a pulse of some sort, you know, and so we, that was on 48 tracks. So 24 of them was just synclavier, was just synth. And then the other 24 was a full orchestra and then a Korean orchestra too. There was a, there were a lot of uh, Korean musicians oh. on that because uh, it had uh, this, the sub character was supposedly Korean who was teaching Remo all the sort of martial arts stuff. And I went, well, I don't want this just to sound like the totally cliched idea of Oriental chops. Right, right. Totally. I really don't want to do that. So I actually spent quite a bit of time at the UCLA Ethnomusicology Library to hear what is Korean music? What does that sound like that's different than Chinese or oh, Japanese or whatever? What is unique about Korean music? And then because we're in LA, there's a lot of Koreans in LA. Right. So there were a lot of Korean musicians. So I worked with them to make and the, and the sounds that I chose were, were much more uniquely Korean than, than uh, Chinese or Japanese. So I really worked hard to have that authenticity. I love that you did that. I really love that you did that. I mean, and, and Remo's theme, not, not the Tommy Shaw Remo's theme, what if, but, but Remo's theme it is so dynamic because it is very epic and heroic and superhero like, and then it's also very beautiful. Well, the beautiful melody da 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 da, da is actually based on a Korean folk song, and oh. it was interesting because I listened and I went, "Wow, what a great melody!" I, I could use that melody as as the more emotional theme, and uh, sort of make it mine, you know, change it. 
And I remember Guy Hamilton, who was the director. So Guy Hamilton did all the early Bond movies and all that. Yeah. He came over to my house to uh, hear what I was doing. And I was working on a synclavier at the time. And I remember playing him the up-tempo theme. And he went, great, I love it. And then I played him that second one. He went, oh, I know that. That's a Korean melody. <laughs> you know, he immediately, I went, yeah, you got it. So, uh, you know, again, I was just trying to keep the authenticity of Korean, not Oriental, which of course is not PC to even yes. use. Uh, you were more authentic than, than Joel Gray. I mean, <laughs> who is not a well, Korean. That's another issue, but that <laughs> issue was beyond Of my course, no, yes. nothing to do with So you did your part. As much as I love Joel, and he's an unbelievably wonderful actor, he was, and I saw him in the original Cabaret. I mean, he was the, yeah. the evil MC in Cabaret. I mean, so, but, you know, he probably shouldn't have taken the part. But, you know, back in those days, people did that. But even at the time, I thought it was a mistake. I remember thinking that. Well, I mean, we've talked about it at, at length. And yeah, I mean, he, he did a phenomenal job. Would it fly today? No. But then it wasn't as embarrassing as Mickey Rooney in uh Breakfast yeah. at Tiffany's, or oh yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> or that, that is very, very offensive in yeah. every way. And and you were speaking about the emotional. You know, Dustin brought up the the, the emotional piece of the music, and and as a kid, I remember his scenes with uh, Fred Ward, oh, Remo, yeah. rest in peace, Fred. Um, as a kid, I'm looking at a guy who you know, iconically doesn't look like the quintessential hero that I was used to seeing on screen. Right. Yeah, and, yeah. but I was drawn because of that music. I was drawn into the emotion and the relationship between the two of them. So well, your music was that piece that made that connection, because if you take that music out, they don't have that same relationship. Right. Well, to True. me, uh, that's a big thing that music does is it creates an emotional bond. So even in the last Starfighter, I always, Whereas uh, a lot of those movies have a different theme for each character and each thing. I pretty much only had one major theme in that film. And, it, and, and I always thought of it as the heart theme when I'd think of it, whether it was big, like, bump, 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 you know, really giant or really wistful or emotional. It, it always was what grabbed you and made you feel something. Because that movie, what what is that? Why is that movie so good? Because you you care about the characters. There's mm -hmm. a lot of there's a lot of uh, time in that movie that's just about Lance Guess and Catherine Stewart about their characters and their relationship and the relationship to where they live and the and the mother and you know and then the relationship with uh, Robert Preston. Another last movie. <laughs> Right, the guy whose last movie I did, mm. but I mean, but you know, who could? I was so happy to write for Robert Preston. I mean, I, you know, Music Man was one of my favorite movies of all time. Oh wow! So Robert Preston was just like the greatest. What a trip that must have been That's for you amazing. then, when you found. I that loved out. it. I only met him once during that because usually you don't meet a lot of the actors doing. Yeah, movie, but uh, what a thrill. You know the thing about Last Starfighter too is is it is a very unique film, and I don't think there's there was never anything up to that point like it, uh, and there hasn't been anything since. Mm -hmm. And so there's a level of staying power, uh, and and I think because the '80s are so much a part of who we are as a culture right now, '80s nostalgia 
our show is a reflection of that. Mm-hmm. Um, and Stranger Things, you know, obviously is is the biggest thing. But mm-hmm. but you know, Last Starfighter is one of those movies that is is going to stand the test of time if it ever gets remade. Uh, you know, I, I say, how dare you? But uh, it's well, in a way, it's kind of nice that it hasn't. They're not talking about remaking it. They're talking about a like a sequel, uh, you know, a reboot, perhaps. Yeah, they have a script and all that. I, I don't know what's going on. They've been trying to do this forever. There's a lot of legal legal issues. Always. Well, I, I hope I hope you're able to uh, find a way to, you know, it, with your talks with Warner Brothers and whatnot, uh, getting a, a vinyl release of The Last Starfighter because that would be beautiful. Well, there was one originally. There is a yes. vinyl that, that was on Southern Cross Records, the original release of that. Which has all the songs because in those days they thought, well, you got to have songs on a record, you know. Incommunicado. Um, my gosh, we didn't, you know, we didn't get a chance to talk about Cheers, which I'm um, feel like we should do that on a follow up <laughs> for sure. But that's um, the 80s. That's the 80s. That is the 80s. We went into the 90s, I think, but it was 80s. Having you on the show has been a real treat. Thank you so much for being on our sure. show and giving us your time and energy, all that good stuff. Thank you. Okay, well, it's been a pleasure. Take it easy. Take care, Craig. Take care. Bye-bye. Thanks so much for listening. We really appreciate it. Don't forget to subscribe and give us a four... Is it five-star rating? (laughs) Don't forget to subscribe and give us a five-star rating on iTunes. We really... Don't forget to subscribe and leave us a five-star rating on iTunes. If you listen to us on Spotify, that's great too. And you can find us on the internet. (laughs) Don't forget to check out our website at $2LateFeed.com. And follow us on Instagram and Facebook at $2LateFeedPodcast. We'll see you next time. We did it. You're listening to the Geekscape Network.